we're going to look into the scriptures together and uh, I'm going to be looking with you again at 1 Kings and uh, a month or so ago when I spoke to you I mentioned that I will be when I'm speaking occasionally uh, about Elijah. I'm going to do a kind of character study, look at him uh, with you and I'm just looking once again at one verse. Uh, So you may not even want to bother to look it up and if you have the NIV you won't want to bother because I'm going to read it from the ESV uh, which is just slightly different and uh, we'll just read the one verse of 1 Kings 17 and verse 1. Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, as the Lord God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years, except by my word. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the way you can draw a man into fellowship with you, grant him such awareness of you, such consciousness of your faithfulness, power and commitment that Lord Jesus you can transform a life and you can do that even tonight with us Lord we pray would you not only show us this man but show us your ways with men come mighty Holy Spirit be our teacher tonight we pray Lord let us more and more understand the days in which we live and what you would do with us and through us for your great glory in Jesus name Amen. Amen. If you are here, you will perhaps remember that we just looked at this opening verse uh, four or five weeks back when I started this series, and I felt as I was coming back to it again to follow this character study through, I felt God was saying to me, don't rush past this first verse again. You may remember that last time, because it's such a sudden uh, introduction, you get no background to Elijah as he's introduced here. Suddenly, it's now Elijah. And uh, so I just took a bit of background and reminded you of what a Bible prophet is. We see sometimes men like Churchill are called prophets because they kind of saw into the future and spoke against the tide. And uh, people say, oh, it's like a prophet. Well, that's borrowing a Bible word. But Bible prophets are not so much people who look at history and look at how things are developing, but they are men who hear directly from God and then speak out, yes, often against the tide, often vindicated later, and Elijah is certainly one of the most famous of such men. A Bible figure, a prophet, who suddenly spoke for God to the nation. And we saw that uh, he spoke particularly to Israel, that Israel was God's special people. At that time, they had been brought out from uh, Egypt, where they'd been in slavery for some years, grown to a great nation from a fairly small family through years and years of slavery and hardship and then God brought them out. He not only brought them out, he gave them a calling which was that they would be God's blessing to the whole world. Indeed, God gave Abraham that promise in the beginning when he was one. He said to him, just one man, through your family, through your descendants, all the families of the earth will be blessed. They were a unique people. They were the ones that were going to receive the Christ. The one would come from that line who would indeed be that great international blesser of the nations. So they were a special people and God not only had a function for them, he had a tremendous affection for them. He said, out of Egypt I called my son. And he talked of them not only as a son whom he taught to walk and cared for, That kind of language is used poetically by the prophets. But also, he talked about them as though he was married to them. He calls them his betrothed. And you'll find many scriptures that speak about the fact he's looking for the loyalty of a loyal wife in relationship. And for them to sin is like to be disloyal to your husband, the Lord. And so it's a very intimate relationship. He called them his special treasure from all the nations. This you only have I known, you're my special treasure. We saw also that in David's day, they reached a kind of peak of understanding of who they were, that they were there now in Jerusalem, a majestic temple was built there, they had an empire that stretched far and wide, great riches and glory and blessing. And David, the great psalmist and worshipper, taught them phenomenal songs that helped them understand who they were. 
that we are God's people. He is, he is our light and our salvation. We were born in Zion. We're here to bless the nations. And he taught them to sing these songs so that they understood more and more the precious thing that they were, the treasure they were in God's eyes. And so it was a wonderful season. Just prior to this chapter, where we read now Elijah, some 58 years had passed since Solomon's powerful empire began to fall apart because first Solomon himself began to compromise and then his son and then each son after that until seven kings had come and gone over 58 years so that by the end of 58 years, a nation that used to be praising and celebrating, understanding who they were in the earth, had become fascinated by other gods and other lifestyles associated with what was in the land that God had given them as a gift. And instead of embracing God's love and provision, they squandered it, began to lose their way, and generation following generation, king following king, each one worse than the other, until it comes to Ahab, who's the king that Elijah confronts, who has married Jezebel, who is from another nation, worshipping another god, and she has brought in the worship of Baal to such a degree that the worship of God is now illegal. And the worship of Baal has become the national worship. He is now the official god, as it were. It started from having lots of gods and then gradually Jezebel pushed and pushed and pushed until now, this people who are meant to be the light of the world, they're here to bless every nation. They've forgotten what they're on the planet for. And they're going after all kinds of other things and missing their way. It's into that situation that Elijah comes to confront what he's observed. And I ask, why, why would we be interested in that in the 21st century. And I answer that by saying that the Bible shows that the nation of Israel was like a sample. And the Bible teaches again and again that what happened to them is like what's happened to the whole world. That actually, man was made for God. We're made in his image, made in his likeness. We only find fulfillment in relationship with him. That's what we're here for. That's true of the whole human race. But sadly and tragically, instead of giving thanks to God, and honouring him, we made up all kinds of strange thoughts and speculations and have gone our own way. And so we now live in a society that has sadly lost its way. And we also pointed out that not only has happened on a grand sweep of world history, but it sometimes happens in kind of cycles where a nation has known Christ as Lord, such as the UK has over the years been called a Christian nation historically. But now we can't any longer honestly live with that label. We're now a post-Christian nation. And I pointed out by way of illustration that we're talking 58 years here and we're just talking about a similar period of time. For instance, since our Queen was crowned and in her coronation in 1953, you can see videos of that film of that, and you'll notice the whole thing was done under the authority of Christ. Many of the words she spoke are very moving. If you see what she said and how she understood herself to be reigning under Christ's rule, that he was the king of the, new, of the nations, and she said some remarkable things. And this nation in the 50s, just after the war, when people had been praying, God have mercy on us as a nation, churches filled, praying through out of the recent warfare. After that came, yeah, the 60s, 70s, and gradually, generation to generation, changing, changing, changing. Until today, even the laws, yes, are being changed to accommodate the new feel of the nation. So it's extremely relevant to us to look at a man like Elijah. How did he conduct himself at a period which was a post, like a post-Christian period, which is the period like the one we're living in. Post-Christian, used to be Christian. I know when I became a Christian, my sister came home from a Billy Graham crusade in the 50s, and she said, I've become a Christian, to which my reply was, we're all Christians. 
We live in England, don't we? We're Christians. You wouldn't say that anymore. You become a what? And uh, we're living in a different kind of day. So this is extremely relevant. So we're going to look at a character. We're going to be doing this study of a person. The Bible makes truth known in stories of people. It's not like a philosophy book. It's not books about kind of cosmology and, and teleology. And, you know, it's not, oh, another chapter, oh, now this philosophical approach. No, it's not like that. It's not even like a systematic theology. It's not like God the creator, turn over the page, God this, God that. No, no, it's a book that tells you how the mighty creator God relates to people. And God is revealed through relationships with people, how they respond to him, how he has to deal with them. And we get to know God through these stories, the way he is with them. And so it's very helpful for us to kind of stand in Elijah's shoes or sandals, that we can get to know, what's God like? How did this man relate to God? And we can, as it were, stand where he stood and see how God reveals himself we'll find that history, Bible history, turns on characters. Even as we prayed for a couple of brothers here tonight and said, right, you're, you know, you're going to become a pillar here. You're going to be an arrow that's shot. And some, there's, a his, there's a story to be told up in York in the days ahead. Great story. Character, one person saying yes to God. You don't know how many hundreds, maybe thousands, God had in mind when he starts dealing with a person. So you'll find Esther, you find Ruth, you find David, Moses. These characters, God arrests an individual, invests all kinds of promises in them, and then they go through. Yes, challenges, problems, battles, but he's invested in their individual lives tremendous plans and purposes. And so we find here with Elijah, he's going to be God's great servant during this season. I want to just talk about him under four headings. The first one is a man in contrast to his culture. A man in contrast to his culture. He stood out like a sore thumb, really. It's interesting, when John the Baptist turned up in the New Testament, people think he's like Elijah. He stands out. He's, he's out of step with everybody. Here's Elijah. He is not in the drift. You remember the nation had forgotten its debt to God. They'd forgotten that God delivered us from bondage. We used to be slaves. We should be forever saying, thank you, God. We don't have the whip on our backs anymore. We're not having to build stuff for, for the Egyptians. We're free. We're free. They should be forever saying, thank you for the freedom. They should have been characterized by thanksgiving. But they weren't. Human race also failed to give thanks to God. But these people, they forgot who they were. They forgot to be loyal to this one who said from heaven, you're my special treasure. Out of all the nations, you're my special treasure. And they kind of forgot that. They just went after other gods. They committed spiritual adultery from God's point of view. So if you read Jeremiah, Hosea, some of these other prophets, that's the language God uses. He said it's like you've committed adultery. You're not being loyal to me. You're not like a bride that's only got eyes for me. You're going after others. But... Elijah didn't go along that line. Elijah was uniquely different. It says of people in our time, Paul in the New Testament says this, we are dead in our trespasses and sins in which we walk. According to the course of this world, he mentions three things. According to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit at work in the sons of disobedience, and according to the lusts of the flesh. The world, the flesh, and the devil, the Apostle John speaks of. These three enemies that confuse us, trap us, ensnare us, and that was the kind of life the Israelites were then living. First of all, according to the course of this world. When you abandon an objective, plumb-line truth that is coming down from heaven, and God says, this is the way I want you to live, and we just drift away from it and go another way, and then we go after things which we regard as kind of freedom, we're getting away from the bondage of having to do it the way God says. We choose our own way. It looks like liberty. It's called liberty, but what it produces is conformity. And, and the Bible says you get squeezed into a kind of mold, which isn't coming down out of heaven, but 
It's the herd mold. It's like everybody does it. <coughs> it's the style that you must now adopt. And you get squeezed into it. And that's what's happening uh, to Israel. That's what happens when you turn your back on God. So that it's, well, what, what's a, what, what will that be acceptable now? And as you see, if you read the previous chapters, one king after uh, uh, Solomon, he, he begins to do things differently. Then the next one pushes it further. The next one pushes it further. And we've watched that happen down through the decades in the UK, for instance. And so now yeah, you get pressure from the upcoming generation. Parents will know about that sort of thing, where their teenagers come home and say, everybody wears them. Everybody's got one. Everybody goes there. Everybody stays late. And parents feel this pressure of, don't be the only one, don't make me the only one. I'm free, but it's kind of free, but... I don't want to stand out and show how free I am by saying, oh, I'm going now. No, no, you, no, you mustn't do that because that'd be peculiar. You, you, some, you find you're being shaped. So much so that it's possible even for teenagers and others to say, well, I, I can't wear those kind of trainers. I, if I was seen in those kind of jeans, they'd laugh. And you, what you can find is little things are now important things. And whereas you think you're being free, actually, hey, come on, you better not be too out of date. You better not be too different because, well, this is the most recent thing that's being shaped upon you. You're being squeezed into this kind of a mold. We find that Elijah doesn't respond to this. Elijah is out of step with his culture. You'll find in the UK now that has attitudes to all kinds of big ethical Moral issues have changed, radically changed. And now this is acceptable, and then sure enough, along comes a bill in Parliament just to write, so let's nail that down now then. If that's what we now feel about that subject, we better change the law, change the timing, change what's acceptable, right? Boom, it's now in legislation, it's now the law of the land. And Christians used to be able to, no, we can't do that anymore. We can't do it because the law's changed. And for a Christian to do the sort of thing they freely did a few decades ago, now you're in, hey, no, you're going over that law, which we nailed down, which reflects what people generally feel now. And so you're in this time which is calling for, do you go with the drift? Or do you become like Elijah? We're going to be looking at a man who was out of step. He contrasted with his culture. That will come out in the workplace They'll come out in conversations, just chats sometimes and outside the school gate or at university, people talking about all sorts of things, and these cultural shifts will surface. Elijah was out of step with his culture. You'll find people sometimes say, you can't really believe that only one religion is true. I totally reject it. You, who do you think you are to say there's only one that could be true? I, I totally reject it. I cannot accept that all religions, that one religion is unique. And you'll find people talk like that as though it's a considered opinion. But really it's kind of a reaction. And, a, and it's a statement which kind of says Christianity won't do because they're all the same. And at one stroke they just kind of made your statements. No, it's irrelevant. They're all the same really. But really, if you think about it, I, I was watching CNN recently and uh, the famous uh, Larry King was interviewing and he had, uh, in the interview, he had a very liberal Episcopalian bishop in America and he also had a very forthright evangelical he was uh, having conversation with. And uh, as he's having this conversation, the, the liberal Episcopalian bishop is saying, well, my Jesus would receive everybody. He would receive the Muslim, he would receive the Hindu, because, well, my Jesus... And then he turned to the other guy, and the other guy said, no, there's only one way. Jesus said, I am the way. There's only one way. All other ways are wrong. There's only one name. And this guy said, well, how can you possibly say that? And this is the uh, Christian bishop saying, how can you possibly say that? Because, well, that means you're, you're saying all Muslims are wrong. And, and, and Larry King here is from Jewish extraction. You're just wiping people out. And he's just kind of saying, hey, look, everything must be acceptable. And Larry King turned to him, the interviewer, and said, how can everything be right? How can they all be right? Surely, if one says this and one says that, one of them's got to be right and wrong. I thought, oh, sense is prevailing. 
It's like, going, it's like going to Heathrow and say, where do you want to go? Nigeria, but it doesn't matter which plane I'll get. I'm sure I'll turn up there. <laughs> no, we, we're living where people make, they don't make considered opinions. It's not, it's not like they're putting their faith in it. Sometimes we need to perhaps challenge them and say, is that what you're putting your faith in then? They're all the same, the same, because you seem to be rejecting my statement of faith and commitment. Are you putting commitment in that then? They're all of the same. Because they make it a statement, like a statement of faith, really. The reality is it's an emotional thing. It's just blurring the edges. And Elijah was in stark contrast. Dear friends, we're going to be out of step. If we're going to be following the Lord Jesus. We'll be in contrast to our culture. Secondly, he was a man who was in contact with his God. This is so crucially important. He says, the God before whom I stand. Mentioned uh, that the NIV says, the God whom I serve. It's just uh, expressing it in a more kind of common way. But actually losing what the text actually says. The text actually says, the God before whom I stand. It's a very vivid phrase. It's not just serving God, though that's wonderful, of course. But I'm standing before God. And because Elijah stands before God, he also finds he is able to stand before the king. Just like John the Baptist, because he stood before God, he could also stand before Herod. And down through the ages, men like Luther, who stood against the whole of their uh, time, they, they stood before God, then they said, here I stand, I can do no other and turned history, affected the whole of Europe, affected world history, because a guy actually stood before God and then found that he could stand before all kinds of secular power and religious power of his generation. He stood first before God so he could stand before the culture. And beloved, if we're going to serve God in our generation, it's not just being noble will do that for you. Having high aesthetic views will not do it. You will not do it on your own. You won't be able to stand against the flow unless you are also standing before God. You won't be able to keep it up. You won't be able to do it with conviction. You'll find I'm being bombarded, bombarded. You need also to stand before God. Effectively, knowingly, consciously, life-changingly, it having impact upon you. And so we find here, he was standing before God. How did he do that? How did that come about? Can you just breeze into the presence of God and stand there? You might say, well, your name's Elijah. I guess that means your parents believed. Because the name Elijah is two names for God. Yah, sometimes translated Jehovah, but Yahweh is the Hebrew word. Yah, hallelujah. Eli, which is another word for God. Elijah, the Lord is God. Yahweh is the true God. That's what his name means. And so they may say, well, you're raised religious, your parents. Well, you may have had really good parents. But in the end, you can't inherit this. You can't inherit the right to stand before God. You can't inherit the power that comes. Actually, you'll find it's interesting, there are a number of Bible characters who have encounters with God. I mean, this, this is not just, a, as I said earlier, a philosophical book. It tells you how people have extraordinary encounters. Sometimes, like Ezekiel, for instance. Ezekiel 1.1 tells you the date it happened and the place where he was. It's not like a kind of a mystical thing. He says, on this day, of this month, of this year, at this place, I suddenly saw the heavens open. Breathtaking. I saw the heavens open. And he had an encounter with God. At the end of which it does not say, I stood before him. At the end of which it says, in verse 28, I fell on my face. That is a kind of frequent phrase when people have encounters with God. And so you'll find Joshua, when he's about to take over from Moses, he's had a lot of training, he's been a good disciple, now he's going to take the responsibility on his shoulders, there's the land, there's Jericho, and suddenly he has this revelation of God standing right in front of him. And it doesn't say, and Joshua stood before. It says Joshua hit the deck. Joshua fell on his face to the ground. 
similar. I can just go through many. Revelation 1.17, John the Apostle suddenly sees the heavens open, very similar to Ezekiel, but hundreds of years later, he says, I saw the heavens open, I saw a throne. And he says one or two of the things he saw, that he says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. Like a dead, I've seen God. So I hit a truck. I, I'm like a dead man. It's not just have you thought of some things. You know, like it's four things I'd like you to know. It's an encounter that leaves him in that condition. Isaiah says what, the year that King Uzziah died, you read about it in Isaiah 6, I saw the Lord high, lifted up. His train filled the temple. I saw angels crying holy. He said, I was ruined. Ruined. Hebrew word means lamed. Couldn't walk anymore. Then the angel flew from the throne and said, your sins are forgiven. Because the Bible says this, if the Lord counts sins, who can stand? Who can stand before God? The extraordinary and wonderful thing is this, that when you see these people, they have this consistent thing about them, they fall before God, they meet God, they're overwhelmed, they're just overwhelmed. But you see again and again how God comes to them. Like John in Revelation says, his right hand was upon me. He came to me. And you'll find that he says to Ezekiel, arise, stand on your feet. And it actually says the spirit came into him and he stood. He's not only invited to stand, he's empowered to stand. God lifts him up. See, God, God's intention isn't to wipe us out. You'll find in the New Testament the Apostle Paul breathing out threatening and slaughter against the church. He is a church hater, a Christ hater, and suddenly he sees a light brighter than the noonday sun. And, and he hears the voice of Christ, and he's on the ground. He says, we all fell to the ground. And so brilliant was the sight that he actually lost his sight. He can't see, he's blinded. And then the word comes to him, similarly, in Acts 26, 16, when Paul's telling his story, he says, God then said to me, but get up, stand upon your feet. For this purpose I've appeared to you, to appoint you as a minister and a faithful witness. So here's this arrogant Pharisee, and God just wrecks him. So he's blind, help, help. And then God says, stand up. I've not just wiped you out, I've called you. But I don't want you to think I can just switch from lead Pharisee to lead Christian. I think I'll just swap over, cross the floor. No, in between there's a devastation. And then he's told, now stand. Elijah, who's now going to represent God to a whole backslidden nation, later we'll see he'll stand before a nation and call down fire from heaven. He shuts the heavens, no rain till I say so. That doesn't come from a casual acquaintance with God. That can come from learning a few verses. That's an encounter that's gripped him, changed him. And really, that's like the beginning of becoming a Christian. A couple of weeks ago, we baptized some folk here. It was such a joy to hear their stories and witness that. And even in baptism, we are kind of acting this out a bit. People say, no, I believe in Jesus. I believe he died. I believe he was buried. I believe God raised him from the dead. All my hope before God is in Jesus. His death takes away my sin. That's my only hope. And we're saying that. Have you repented of your sin? Yes. Do you believe? Yes. Therefore, in the name of Jesus Christ, we take your feet away from you. <laughs> oh, the feet have gone. Yeah. And then we put you up on your feet again. Say, now stand. Live for God. Live for God. You've had an encounter with God. Your old life has been buried with him. Now stand. And Paul says in this wonderful verse, he said, God said to him, now stand on your feet. For this purpose I've appeared to you. Every Christian has that really coming down out of heaven. I've appeared to you for a purpose. I haven't just rescued you, I'm investing purpose in your life. It says in the scripture, arm yourself with purpose. 
It's terrible when Israel had lost its purpose. What are we doing on the nation? Oh, I think I'll try that. What am I doing in the earth? I'll try that. The modern world, we don't know what we're trying. Well, try this. Well, have some drugs. Try that. That might give you an experience. Where does it take me? Well, it'll take you a little while, then you need some more, and then it's not going anywhere. But for this purpose, I've appeared to you, Paul. Now stand up. Elijah must have had that kind of an encounter. He's, he's met God. Now he's standing before God. Would you love that? Say, Lord, I want to stand before you. I want to stand before you for Brighton. I want to stand before you for the nations. I want to stand before you, Lord. I'd love to have this encounter, this access, this prayer life, this freedom from the culture that would shape me otherwise. I will gradually yield to it if I don't keep seeing you. But if I keep seeing you, I will be transformed into that image and likeness. So he is a man before God. He stands before God. And we stand in this grace. Romans 5 verse 2 says, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. We have access by faith. Access by faith into this grace in which we cower. No, no. This grace in which we stand. We stand. So important. We understand grace. We understand, I can stand before God. Not through my works, not through my accomplishment or achievement, but by grace. By grace I stand before God. I who would shrivel away. I who would ask for the rocks to fall on me, to hide me from him. Now by grace, all my sin, I can stand before him. It's my prayer that we'll become like an Elijah church. But in this town, yet out of step with the culture, but alive to God, able to access him and fellowship with him. We stand because we've had encounter. He became a man of conviction. See, we live in two different worlds, really. If you're a Christian, you live in a world where you can access God, gaze upon him. As David said, this one thing I desired of the Lord, this I'll seek after, that all the days of my life I will dwell in the house of the Lord to behold the beauty of the Lord. All the days of my life. See, we need like a daily encounter, a daily gazing. Not so much even asking or praying, or just gazing. To behold the beauty of the Lord, to be preoccupied. Why? Well, I'm going out into that world where people will say, oh, we don't believe that anymore. Are you going to come along with this? How about doing that? If you don't, that, you'll be in trouble with that. I need to gaze continually. So I can come out of the experience like Elijah and come to a king and say, I stand in the presence of the living God. And know he lives. Really represent him with courage and clarity. God will help us to do that corporately. As God keeps building this church, we will be a voice in this town. And God will help us as we fragment across the town Week by week, day by day, and you are in conversations, on the bus, in the shop, in the common room. Conversations where you say, no, actually, I don't go that way. Let's come on to how it goes on from that. He was also a man who had compassion for his contemporaries, right? That's my third point. He had compassion for his contemporaries. He didn't deny the problem. He didn't say, oh, well, it's the way it is. Come on, you've got to change. 21st century people now. You know, it's not like in the days of David, not like the days of Solomon. That's another era. We're a different era now. We've got to face reality. We're not like Moses going through the wilderness. We're in this land. Look, Jezebel's got real power. Come on, let's just face reality. Let's just go with the flow. No, he didn't deny the problem. He didn't deplore it's possible for just, and you can meet sometimes people who just deplore change. That's not awful what's happening. Have you heard what's happening? What the headlines? Look what's happening. It's terrible things. And sometimes you can get into a mood which just deplores it. What, what are we going to see next? What will our headlines say next? These terrible young people, these awful hoodies. You know, what's going on? And so you get kind of, uh, oh, terrible. Oh, oh, isn't it awful? Have you seen? Oh, terrible. And, what, and, and you can be like that. You can say, oh, I'm in step with God, but mm, the world, what a mess it's in. You could even 
actually despair. You say, well, I don't know what's going to happen to us. What's going to happen to the world? I mean, it's getting hotter all the time. Snow caps are going. Ice caps are melting. Then we see all this terrible thing happening, the economy. Oh, I don't know what's happening. It's terrible. You see, you can go in a number of different ways. You can kind of deny it by saying, well, it's the way it is. You can either deplore it or you can despair and say, well, I don't know what's going to happen. But he didn't do any of those things. He identified with his contemporaries and was moved in zeal for God and compassion for them. It drove him to prayer. You can't talk about Elijah without talking about prayer. When James is writing in the New Testament and he's urging people to pray, he says, listen, pray, you must pray. Then he says, Elijah was a man just like us. It's like the man who springs to mind. When you say prayer, you think Elijah. Another other great heroes of prayer in the Bible. But Elijah, more than other, just springs to mind. Elijah was a man just like us. What a wonderfully encouraging introduction. He was a man just like us. He doesn't look like us. He kind of looks like an angel. Now Elijah. Then he goes up to heaven in a whirlwind. You think, whoa, what was that? Superman. No, no, no. A man like us. He was a man like us, and he prayed. He prayed because he understood about mercy for himself. He'd encountered God and received mercy. He's moved with compassion. Dear friends, I find that sometimes when we're worshipping and just taken up with God, just loving him, you suddenly think, my contemporaries have never known. They've never known what it is to receive Mercy. They've never known what it is to say, I'm sorry, Father, and you just know it's all right again. They've never known what it is to say, well, we're moving on, but we know God's gone before us. We've never, they've, never known, they've never known the things that you treasure. They've never been in a worship meeting where you're just taken up with God. They've never heard God's voice. They've never heard God's voice. They've never, ever heard God speak to them and feel, that's my Father, you're my shepherd. They're out there living in the image and likeness of God and not knowing what they're on the planet for. Wrecking their lives, their bodies. Youngsters in their teenage years wrecking their lives. And then they've got decades to work out, what did I do? What am I here for? He's moved with compassion, so should we be. He believed that God could show mercy. It sent him to pray. He knew his history. He knew his Bible. He knew that Abraham at one time heard from God, I am going to judge. And Abraham, who was called the friend of God, he also had developed a relationship to get to know God. And he came to God and said, Lord, don't do it. Don't, I plead with you, don't do it. And he, he had this wrestling with God. And God adjusted and adjusted and came to meet Abraham. Hey, what a privilege. What is prayer? That a man can say to God, oh God, please, please, please. And God says, okay, okay. I'll meet with you, I'll come towards you. It's breathtaking. Moses was a huge man of prayer in that God at one time said, I've had enough of this nation. I'm going to wipe this nation out. And Moses, oh no, 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 Lord, don't do that. You promised, you promised. He said, it's okay, I'll start again with you, Moses. You can be the head of the new nation. You, it'll be Father Moses had many sons. Many sons had Father Moses, all right? You can head the whole thing up. Forget Abraham. No, no, Moses said, no, no, no. God, you must not do it. What will the heathens say? They'll say, you weren't able to do it. You promised. And he wrestles. He, re- he doesn't say, wow, I could be the head of the new nation. No, no, he's more taken up. And he, and he pleads and pleads. And God says, okay. That prayer is breathtaking. It's breathtaking in its power. You'll find Samuel... When God was going to judge, Samuel stands in the gap, pleads, pleads. God says, okay. Dear friends, we can get into God and ask for things to happen and watch them happen. We can see him vindicate his name. We can see him turn this church into a provocation to this city. We've done it in measure. 
We'd come, we'd say, Lord, please would you give us this kind of money? Please would you give us this building? Please. We've seen amazing things. We get hold of God, Lord, do it, do it, do it. Wow, he does it. But he wants to train us to pray, to get hold of him. He wants to do that in our lives. Jesus said, man, always to pray, not give up. Elijah characterized that. Always pray, don't give up. But you're only one man. I'm going to pray and not give up. But sure, you know the whole thing. No, I'm going to pray and not give up. That's what Jesus said. Men are always to pray and not give up. Between John 14 and 16, on six occasions, Jesus says, if you ask, I'll give you. He says it six times in three chapters. A man called Dr. Curtis Mitchell says this, commenting on that. In this simple statement, prayer is set forth as the primary human factor in the accomplishment of God's program on earth. Christ asserted that divine action in some mysterious manner is conditioned on believing prayer. Thus, prayer is set forth as the chief task of the believer. Prayer is set forth as the chief task of the believer. You need to ponder that for a season. It's your chief task. It's the thing that gives you most effectiveness. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much, it says in James 5. Then it says about Elijah. In the Amplified Translation, it says, has great power in its working. Your prayers have great power. When a church gathers to pray, there's breathtaking power. You read the story of Yonggi Cho, started with a handful in Korea, and the thing he emphasized was, we gather to pray, we gather to pray. Prayer Mountain, you know the story maybe. Now a church approaching a million strong. Breathtaking. Built on prayer. Prayer. His book, Prayer, the Key to Revival, I think is the most helpful book on prayer I've ever read. Just laying hold of God. In his commentary on Sue Corinthians, Philip Hughes says, Prayer is stressed over and over again in the New Testament as a vital prerequisite for the release and experience of God's power. A vital prerequisite. So we don't just put our confidence in trying to do things well, though there's no credit in trying to do things badly or not trying at all. So we will work hard at trying to do things well. But our prime power is to pray. I'm so thrilled that we're going to be starting the Saturday morning prayer meeting again in the new year. It can be the powerhouse of the church. You read the the books about Jim Simbola in uh, New York, and he says about his Tuesday night prayer meeting, he said, this is the most important meeting in the church's life. This is where the power is. Beloved, we just need to understand he was moved with compassion. He didn't say, oh, we're a terrible nation, what's going on? Forgotten who they are. No, no, he got to God. He stood before God. He took advantage of access to God, and he prayed. And then last of all, he was a man of courage for his day. You know, you can even make prayer an excuse to withdraw. Elijah didn't do that. Elijah didn't only pray. He didn't pray and say, well, I'm going to pull out of this, I'm just going to pray. No, the whole story is say, Ahab is confronted. Elijah prays fervently. In fact, he must have prayed first. One commentary I was reading this week says where Jesus said in the Gospels, the rain stopped for three and a half years in the time of Elijah. Well, it says in the passage, it was three years. So the commentator says maybe it had already been six months before Elijah confronted Ahab. Maybe that's why it was a current theme. Maybe they're six months into drought. They're wondering about it. All he has to say is, it's not going to rain at all. Because he's already been prevailing in prayer. He's already got certainty from God. I will hear you. I will stop the rain. Now he's confronting the king. He's not just praying. So let them work it out. He's confronting. He's among the people. 
And we can see two things happen sometimes in church history. You can see sometimes the church kind of goes down different streams, and sometimes there's a more liberal perspective. Well, look, let's just soften the gospel, take away some of its difficult things to believe. The miracles, the hard things, get rid of the shocking edges, get rid of the offensive bits, make it more acceptable. We want to reach the lost. Sadly, that's often how that's engaged, the kind of what some people call the social gospel. And you can find sometimes we who are more evangelical saying, no, no, we're not going to get involved in that social gospel. We have it right. We are biblical. We are accurate. We are true. But sadly, we're not engaging. We're not there. We're not where people are. We're not sharing the good news. We're not involved in the pain and the pressure and the difficulty. We're going to find Elijah as we go on through the story. He's right in among the people who are hurting. God wants us to be, yeah, righteous and clear and unyielding with truth, but compassionate and on the move and among people, touching their lives. I was so thrilled recently when we prayed with some of our women here, went out into the red light district in Brighton with the police. And that this church was being honoured and respected for its involvement. Because we're, yeah, we're there, out there, it's hurting. Trying to help. Trying to get involved. Saying, yeah, but we still believe this. This is what we believe. Ah, these funny people always well, believe, hey, but you're the ones out there where they need us. Yeah, that's right. Clear on truth, compassionate towards people. That's the way Elijah was. We need to ask God, help us get that mix together that we don't withdraw from the culture. You notice the prayer meetings in the book of Acts have the similar feel. They've got this Elijah feel. They're saying, oh, sovereign Lord, grant us boldness to speak. Stretch forth your hand. Signs and wonders be done in your holy name. And then they're out. They're praying and they're out there. They're praying and they're among the people. They're not just praying. They're getting to where the people are. In fact, it's one of the reasons I think that prayer meetings are not dull in the book of Acts. Some people think, prayer meeting? Mm, what could be more dull? You, if you read the book of Acts, you won't find one dull prayer meeting. There are several prayer meetings scattered through. Day of Pentecost was a prayer meeting. It wasn't exactly dull. Fire fell from heaven. Wow. Then you find Peter's in prison, we better pray. They pray, oh God, for Peter, prison door opens. That's a pretty exciting prayer meeting. The guy in prison's knocking the door trying to get into the prayer meeting. Then they're praying and God says, separate me, Paul and Barnabas. Every prayer meeting I can see, there's several listed, everyone's got an action context. So we don't just pray because, well, you know, that comes around, that's on the diary now, prayer time, stick it on the diary. No, no, it's to do with our being very active. As we've heard from the notices, you know, the carol service, people will still come to carol service, even pantomime. It's not just for fun. It's fun, yes, but it's also, hey, come on, let's engage, engage, engage. Engaging, having courage of our convictions, standing true to what we believe in. Let me ask you, as uh, my time has gone, really, are you in step with the culture? Or out of step. Where you work, where you study, where you spend your time. You instead, you go along with it. Or are you, no, no, that death, you're just different. Not because we're awkward. You may still be very, very popular. Because, yeah, you don't gossip. Yeah, you don't lose your temper. Yeah, you can be trusted. But you're so different. That's how it should be, dear friends. Out of step. Are you standing before God? You say, well, do I have to say my prayers? That's not the question, do I have to say my prayers? Elijah says, the God before whom I stand. In, in a day like our day, where there's no social church going anymore, there's no nominal Christianity left, hardly any. When I was converted, there was loads of nominal Christianity. Everybody thought they were Christian. Social, just go to church. No, that's finished, really. You need to be face-to-face with God. You need to be drinking in His love, singing His praise, having what people used to call a quiet time, make it a noisy time. 
enjoying him, seeing face to face, beholding his beauty, getting encounters with God. You need it. Then God will give you people to stand before. Because you stood before God first. He stood before a king, but he first stood before God. <coughs> You've got to be men and women of prayer. You're going to take advantage of the access we have. And this prime calling on our lives. This first calling more than any other thing that God has given us, the chief task of the believer. I'd love to feel when it's announced in the new year, hey, the prayer meeting started. It's like, we're, oh, when, when, how can I get, hey, can I, when, can I get there? How'd you get in? Where'd you park? Let's get there. Can I please come? Wouldn't it be wonderful? We, we take advantage. We've got access to God. What will God do if we lay hold of him? Not withdrawing. God's allowed us to be here in the hub of what's going to be such a big center. We're going to be very, very visible. Buildings go up, lots of other things. Exciting, isn't it? Buildings going up everywhere. What's that thing right in the middle of it? It's the church of the living God. Amen. A people who stand before him, behold him, are unfazed, heartbroken really, about the drift, but unfazed, clear, strong. God wants us individually like that and a corporate Elijah. I'm just going to pray and I'm going to ask Phil to say a few words to us. Father, I ask you in Jesus' name, let your truth captivate and motivate us. Thank you for the story of Elijah. Thank you. We don't just have a list of things about God, but we see how you responded to a man. Lord, draw us, draw us, draw us. And I pray for those who don't actually know you yet, are being drawn along in this bewildering season, wondering, is there a way out of it? I pray you'd speak even now as we hear your voice together. In Jesus' name. Amen.